So early in my career, I started to realize that although I thought I had found my flock, I was still seen as different. As a kid, Dantley Davis grew up obsessed with electronics, computer programming, and video games. Years later, when he started working in tech as a designer and developer, he sat down next to a bunch of people who spoke the same language. I was a, a nerd just like them. Unfortunately, they didn't see him the same way. After the end of a, us working 12 hours, they would go to a bar and not invite me, or they were having their own video gaming session on the weekend, and I would hear about it later and I wasn't invited. Despite all their similarities, there was one big difference between Dantley and his colleagues. I'm half Black, half Korean. The color of his skin. Welcome to For the Love of Work, an original podcast about the employee experience made possible by Rogers. My name is Sonia Kang. I'm a professor of organizational behavior, and I study the psychology of people at work. In this episode, we're exploring a couple of big topics, diversity and inclusion, what they actually mean, how you can tell when a progressive company is practicing them properly, and how people at any level of an organization can be allies to colleagues from underrepresented groups. Make the hires and make the promotions. Um, Stop the talking. We'll also hear about how Dantley Davis went from that lonely entry-level designer job to chief design officer at Twitter, where he leads incredibly diverse and inclusive teams. In the middle of a pandemic, the issue of police brutality bubbled to the surface, again. In Minneapolis, the killing of George Floyd launched a global movement in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. In Canada, during the same period, there were several instances of police brutality against Indigenous people. As protests broke out all over the world, they led to a broader conversation about Black lives, Indigenous lives, and the experiences of people of color. I think the unique thing about this situation is the trauma was not only experienced by Black people, it was experienced by everyone. As progressive companies raced to support their Black and Indigenous employees, all workplaces were forced to examine their role in perpetuating systemic racism. Companies from Adidas to Xerox were quick to put out statements condemning anti-Black racism and violence. And many companies started the difficult but so overdue work of having internal conversations around race and racism. It finally feels like we have a bit of momentum but it's just a start. There's so much more work to be done, especially as workplaces become more and more diverse. So on this episode, I wanna continue the discussion because diversity and inclusion is my specific area of study. And I've invited a few other experts to join us. Let's begin by defining some terms. Diversity refers to numeric representation. So literally counting the number of people within particular categories. Tina Opie is a professor of management at Babson College. She also consults with companies who want to develop DNI strategies. 
So you might count the number of Black employees, the number of Latinx employees or Asian employees, the number of people who identify as women or non-gender binary, the people who identify as men. We're focusing on race in this episode, but companies also need to pay attention to diversity based on age, gender identity, social class, sexual orientation, ability, and all of the myriad other social identities that make each of us who we are. They also need to pay attention to how these different identities intersect to create unique experiences and challenges. Like Tina says, diversity is about the numbers. Are we getting good numbers of different employees through the door? While we're talking about definitions, it's also important to note that diverse and diversity are words that describe groups, not individuals. I hear this all the time. People will talk about so-and-so being a diversity hire or ask me how I feel about something as a diverse person or as the parent of a diverse kid. This is hugely problematic because it centers white as the default desired race and everything else as being diverse or different from that standard. A black person is no more diverse than a white person, nor is a group of five black people more racially diverse than a group of five white people. Instead, if you want to refer to someone's racial identity, honor it, name it specifically. For example, depending on the context, I might refer to myself as Indian, Indo-Canadian, or I might just say that I'm Canadian. Then we get to inclusion. And inclusion has to do with who is at the table to make the decisions. Inclusion is all about what happens to employees once they've come through the door and they're now on the inside. Do they feel welcome? Do they have power? Are their voices heard? Can they be themselves at work? Do they have the same chance of rising through the ranks as everyone else? Companies tend to do a lot of work on the diversity side, making sure that their hiring pools are diverse, but sometimes seem to forget about the inclusion side altogether. And then you end up with a lot of diversity at the bottom, but basically only white men at the top. Some people prefer the term belonging with that slightly different because that's about, I think, a psychological attachment and sense of belonging to the organization. As we'll talk about more in a later episode on psychological safety, feeling included and like we belong is a fundamental human need. If we don't feel included, we won't even feel safe and secure in the environment, let alone feel inspired and empowered to be our best selves and do our best work. But a lack of inclusion doesn't only disrupt our ability to do a good job. It cuts much deeper. It actually starts to affect people's mental health. Jason Murray runs BIPOC Executive Search. One area he asks companies to look at is the insidious ways a sense of belonging can get undercut. For a Black person, you know, you may be traveling to your place of work, and even before you get to your office, you will have experienced maybe a dozen microaggressions on the way. They might experience a microaggression, you know, when they are in a lineup and might feel like a cashier is just kind of giving them that vibe of, oh, I prefer not to check that person out. Um, You know, it can even be being in your place of work and seeing all of these very traumatizing events happening to Black bodies and Black people and people in your office not checking in to see how you might be doing. And that is a missed opportunity for allyship because all you really need to do is listen. And a lot of people don't know how, and that's part of the problem. 
And when you experience microaggressions like that, and Black people experience them often, that is a form of discrimination or a form of racism embedded in our systems, right? Jason is absolutely right. But you know, a better term for microaggression is something like everyday or insidious racism, because there's nothing micro about it. It's a big problem. One that Dantley Davis is all too familiar with. I personally have gone through that my most of my career where, you know, I had my corporate self, which was just a very small slice of me because I had felt the, the pain of um, being stereotyped or judged or discriminated against. And then I had the regular me that I showed to my friends and my family. And um, that's not a great way of living. Stanley is describing something called code switching, which happens when people express themselves one way with one group of people and then another way with another group of people. Code switching isn't necessarily bad. You wouldn't speak to your boss in the same way you speak to your kids, for example. But code switching can be bad if people are doing it because they feel forced to do it, because their identities aren't welcome in a given space. For a long time, there was only one way to deal with not feeling included for a person of color. It was to speak and act the way they needed to, to make their true self invisible in white spaces. Just keep your head down and do the work. My dad told me from the time I was 10 years old that I had to work two times harder than anyone around me uh, for the same thing. So I, I took that to heart. So the way I tried to prove my worth was not by speaking up early in my career, it was by just grinding and making sure that everyone understood I was there for merit. Now that strategy can make you really good at what you do, which is definitely what happened to Dantley. He worked at a string of big companies like PayPal, Facebook, and Netflix. But working hard doesn't actually fix racism. And it's completely unfair and unacceptable to put that burden of figuring out how to work around racism onto the people who are experiencing it. So we're going to get to some real solutions in just a moment. But first, now that we have a few terms down, let's look at some things standing in the way of diversity and inclusion in the workplace. One study said that in any given moment, like if I were to snap my fingers, uh, 11 million pieces of information were going through my mind at that moment, but only 40 of them were conscious, like what we would actually think of as thoughts versus the rest are kind of these unconscious thoughts. Dolly Chug is a professor of management and organizations at NYU and author of an awesome book called The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias, and the Dear Good People newsletter. She's done a lot of research about something called implicit or unconscious bias. And she says that to understand bias, you have to understand how the mind deals with an overwhelming amount of information. The way the mind does that, how is it handling 11 million pieces of information or, you know, whatever the right number is, it's doing it through a lot of shortcuts. It's doing it through a lot of autopilot. Our brains have to develop these shortcuts to help us get through life efficiently, but that can become problematic. For example, stereotypes are one of these shortcuts and they can come out as racism. That we may not even remember when we specifically started to associate those ideas. We may not have any sort of love for those ideas. We may not on a conscious level in any way endorse them. But these unconscious biases can guide our behavior. 
Our unconscious biases, I think, make it harder for us to notice things because if we're sort of expecting to see a certain thing, then even on an unconscious level, we're not going to notice sort of stuff outside of that expectation. Mental shortcuts like stereotypes are so efficient, they can block out information that goes against what we're expecting to see. For example, Black and Indigenous people are unjustly targeted by stereotypes associating them with lower intelligence and professional ability. In my own work, I've found that if you send out two identical resumes, one with a Black name and one with a white name, the one with a white name is two and a half times more likely to get a call back for an interview. It's awful. The thing is, if you talk to the hiring managers who looked at those resumes, they would probably tell you that the process was fair. Each and every day, it seems like there's someone else who has a platform that will say something like, we don't feel like there's anything wrong with our institution in terms of inequities or in terms of institutional racism or things of that nature. This is Jason Murray again. What that does is it tells the employees, well, if that's what the president said, I think I'm okay. I don't have to do any learnings. I don't have to become any more engaged. The problem isn't me. The problem is the people that are saying that there's a problem. (laughs) And this is how we get to systemic racism. When racist structures and processes are so deeply embedded in society and in organizations as normal practice that they're acted out over and over again and again and become so normalized that people don't even consider them as racist because they simply don't see it. The reason why we have a disproportionate representation of white men in executive positions is because of racist policies and systems. Because otherwise, what are the alternative explanations? There's something lacking in women. There's something lacking in Black people, in Asian people, in Latinx people, in Middle Eastern people. They're not as competent. They're not as educated. So basically what we're saying in order for it not to be racist, is that there are no other qualified people besides white men to fill those roles, and that those white men are the most qualified people for those positions. So this is the anatomy of systemic or institutional racism. It's there, but for the most part isn't noticed because of how normal it seems. And in the meantime, it's creating major disparities in things like housing, employment, education, healthcare, and access to justice. It's a huge obstacle standing in the way of diversity and inclusion. But Tina Opie has hope. Racist behavior is temporary. I think the thing that I'm seeing now is more people are willing to admit that they've engaged in those behaviors or said those things or had those thoughts, and therefore they need help. The second thing that I'm seeing is a willingness to be transparent and vulnerable. And that takes a lot of work. So next, we're going to look at some solutions that organizations and people can use when they're willing, transparent, vulnerable, and ready to make a change. So if an organization wants to try and work on its inclusion practice, the first thing I would say is that they need to understand where the problems are and ideally understand that using data 
which they can track as they implement new practices to try and resolve that problem. Anita Rattan is a professor of organizational behavior at London Business School. The first thing an organization must do is admit and accept the existence of systemic racism. You have got to address the stereotypes and biases that are in the system, and you might have to address the stereotypes and biases that are in your majority group members. But it's not just about looking at people. It's also the processes that the company has set up for everyone to use. For example, hiring, promotion, and evaluation practices like performance reviews are all heavily influenced by systemic racism. You have got to really take a hard look at people who might be in positions of power and ask, you know, where do they need to work on themselves? Where do they need to be educated? Or are they the right people? And then the second step is to really invite the voices of members of underrepresented groups so that you can learn from them about what the barriers to their belonging are. And then you actually bring in experts and say, okay, we have listened to our people. These are the things they say. How can you help us come up with programs and practices and policies to address the, the issues that we have? Experts like Tina Opie. By the way, you have to learn how to do that because many times I think this conversation about racism and anti-racism leads people to become very either defensive or reactive. They may attack other people who don't agree with them. Progressive companies hopefully aren't reacting like that. Rather, they might be initiating conversations about unconscious bias. But be aware of companies that try to put a Band-Aid on DNI issues with a one-and-done session of unconscious bias training. Instead, those conversations could lead to mentoring programs or support for internal employee resource groups and providing a safe space for employees from underrepresented groups. Companies might be creating DNI councils made up of employees and leaders or setting up listening sessions like the ones Tina runs. It might be, for example, women partners get together and they have they do what we call fishbowl where they will talk with each other about the experience of being women partners at a particular firm. Men and and people who are uh, non-binary might observe and take notes and listen. And then they reflect on that. And they're not allowed to interrupt, to comment, to sneeze. I'm very clear on those instructions. You are literally a fly on the wall. And then to go away and reflect and share specific examples of how you as an individual how you in your role and how your organization writ large can address or redress the issues that those women just shared. And I do the same thing with people from differing racial ethnic backgrounds. Listening carefully, absorbing what you've heard, and taking that learning into your future interactions is one form of allyship. Honest self-examination is another. Tina gets clients to do that during this super interesting exercise called Dig and Bridging. Dig is about surfacing your own racialized identity, understanding what that means, understanding what your perspectives are on race, your own as well as others. And then once you do that work, you can bridge, which is connect with people who are different from you, hear from them, and then learn how to develop policy change to affect collective advance. She starts with the head of the company. I will go to them and say, listen, share with me your personal narrative about race. Talk to me about when you first felt like you recognized that you were white or that you, 
Black or Latinx or Asian. Getting leaders to talk about their own racial identity and how it influences their same race and cross-race interactions requires them to go deep. That level of racialized introspection, I think, leads to empathy. And when leaders express that empathy and they're vulnerable enough to share that, it leads to other people trusting them more. That dig and bridging then ripples down from the executive to the leadership teams, and it creates space for a wider dialogue. Another strategy is to increase diversity. And remember, that means numeric representation. Organizations often focus on, okay, let's develop an intern program. Let's make sure we get more people into the pipeline. Okay, that's great. But what about hiring cohorts of executives to come in from historically underrepresented group, not at the bottom, but at the top of the organization? I love this idea so much. And other groups are getting on board with it too. In Canada, Jason Murray is part of a group of Black business executives who've started the Black North Initiative. Having more Black, Indigenous, and persons of color, not just as employees, but people who are part of executive teams so that they're a part of um, planning for the future and determining strategy and really trying to make sure that the organization overall is thinking about inclusion in um, the most intentional terms. Participating companies commit to seven goals, including increasing representation of Black people at the VP plus levels to reflect their overall population in the country by 2025. But there's a challenge when you advocate for representation, but don't take it any further. It creates a loophole for busy executives called the pipeline problem, where they say, I would love to hire a Black or Indigenous person for this super fancy senior position, but I just can't find one. There is not a pipeline problem. After working for years in Silicon Valley, Dantley Davis ended up moving from designer to executive. He's now the chief design officer at Twitter. I found that um, as I transitioned from being a designer to a manager and then executive, recruiting was a core part of the work that I did. Dantley discovered that lack of diversity isn't a pipeline problem. It's a recruitment problem. And this goes back to the advice that my dad gave me, which is work two times harder than everyone around you. I challenge all white executives to do two times the work of any black or brown person at your company when it comes to hiring. I would lift all the rocks to find people. I would do searches on um, black women who are writing blogs that also happen to be designers who are outspoken about conditions as it related to diversity within tech. And before COVID, I was traveling all over the world, meeting with people of color. I flew to London to meet with a, a Black woman about a role. And that was just for coffee. And something awesome started happening as a result of Dantley's rock lifting. A number of people throughout the country, and in some cases the world, reached out to us wanting to be part of our team because of um, how outspoken we had been uh, regarding uh, diversity and inclusion. They wanted to work without the insidious racism and the code switching. The folks on my team can be themselves when they're in the office, or in this case, virtual. They don't have to have a projection of themselves. Um, they, they show up as who they are, and we embrace that. 
Okay, I get it. Not everyone is in a position where they're able to recruit and hire people. So if you're not a manager or team leader, and you're feeling that the sense of belonging in your company isn't what you need it to be, this is what Dolly Chug says you can do. Build community. Uh, That's my message. Even if you're the only Black person or the only woman or one of a small group, there, there are other people going through what you're going through in other organizations. And there are ways now, fairly easy ways, to connect with them formally or informally. And remember, this kind of networking can become recruiting as recruiting undergoes a disruption these days. If you're an executive or senior manager, I guarantee you the entry-level Black engineer on your team is out recruiting you. Progressive companies are asking their employees at every level to participate in recruiting. And this is why diversity is so important. If everyone is involved in recruiting, you want to have people from as many different communities as possible. Someone on the inside will have a better idea of where to look and how to recruit. So my name is Crystal Abatosway. I am a proud Indigenous woman. I'm from the Eagles clan, and my father is from Andak Amnikani First Nations, and my mother's from Chippewas of Minjikining First Nations. I work for TD Bank uh, in recruitment as a diversity sourcing specialist. Some companies, like TD Bank, are building recruitment programs for specific communities. And there's an interesting reason for that. I'm just a handful of people within my own community that's actually worked at a bank or understands what that job is like. It's lack of awareness of understanding what that job is. For instance, I I almost turned down uh, my first banking job because I thought that, you know, I had to be really great at finance and I was taking accounting and, and not doing very well and that I have to be very good at very good at math. And um, that's just that's just the the unconscious bias because we just don't know. When I start to demystify some of those unconscious biases, the Indigenous community in particular go, you know, I never thought that I would be interested in a banking job, but now having spoken to you and heard your story, I'd, lo- I'd love to give you my resume. Having someone from your community show you what's possible has such a strong impact. Companies need to pay attention to this and do a better job of understanding how their recruitment, hiring, and other processes might not be a good match for particular cultures if they're not informed by members of those cultures to begin with. As Indigenous people, when we first meet or interact with someone that we do not know, we start by sharing our personal story of, you know, where we come from. Potentially, if you're Ojibwe or Anishinaabe, like what clan are you from? Uh, And these are really, really important facets to our, our culture and our identity and how we interact with people. When you have that and then you go into a corporate interview, for instance, and they're and they they're not really asking about you, they're asking about your skills, your experience. What education do you have? You've missed that that very crucial cultural component of why of where we would want to, you know, work for your organization. Understanding things like social norms, customs, and historical context are all key to building diversity and inclusion. Jason Murray told us another story. It's a small one, but it says a lot. I've had conversations with candidates such as, let's say, a Black woman who I'm asking to consider a role in a remote area as opposed to an area that's a metropolis and more urbanized, that will literally ask me a question such as, Jason, where would I go to get my hair done? 
And it might seem like a very simple question, but let's face it, we need to have services around us that actually takes care of the life side of our work-life balance. Building inclusive organizational cultures, cultures of belonging, must take everyone into account, and it benefits from everyone's participation. And this includes white employees and other allies, too. Allyship means doing work to improve mentorship and sponsorship programs, amplifying traditionally underrepresented voices, putting in dedicated time and effort to educate yourself about DNI issues and the people that you work with, paying real close attention to the people you're working with and what can be done to make sure they're included and empowered and not being forced to act like anything other than themselves at work. And perhaps most importantly, being open to admitting mistakes and moving past them towards something better. But as that culture is building, and let's face it, we're still very early in this process, different companies are at different stages of their DNI journeys. In the meantime, there's a few more things companies and employees can do to create diversity and inclusion. The first has to do with something called mindsets. So is it possible for someone to enter a work team and still be someone from a demographically different background, but not have to worry about how much they're going to belong based on their identity? Anita Rathan studies the effects of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset in combating stereotyping and bias. We talked a bit about a growth mindset in the last episode as it had to do with resilience, where if you focus on the ability to learn and develop, you can make it through tough situations. Are these people going to accept me here? Am I going to feel like I belong? And in my research, I've been really interested in trying to understand how to turn the volume down or even turn off that question in minorities and women's minds. Yeah, basically using your mindset to tone down the effect of bias. If you believe people can learn and change, this growth mindset will make you more resilient as you wait for that change. Now, of course, this kind of mindset isn't going to solve the problem of racism, but it might help you get through another day. And Dolly Chug says, it's a critical mindset to have if you want to be an ally. It's constant work. You know, it's the work of uh, what I call being a goodish person instead of a good person. If you see yourself as a good person, you just think, I'm supposed to know how to do this. I'm supposed to, I'm a good person. I'm a, I know how to do diversity and inclusion. And as opposed to as a goodish person, I'm a work in progress. I'm always learning new stuff. I'm always noticing new stuff. This is great. I mean, it sucks that I didn't see it before, but I sure do see it now. Like, it is what allows you to truly then move forward. Accepting you might still be influenced by unconscious biases, admitting when they happen, and having faith in your ability to change over time. A growth mindset is almost definitely something Dantley Davis had, working for so many years as one of the only Black designers in Silicon Valley. Whether he was conscious of it or not, that mindset had been instilled in him. Yeah, my dad was, uh, he was black and he was very outspoken and vocal about civil rights. And um, when he passed, I felt I could use what I love, which was technology and design to be an activist within the context of the work that I do. And I found this uh, sweet spot where 
uh, by paying attention to the needs of underrepresented groups, I was actually able to build great products for everyone. But it was his his lessons of being outspoken, speaking truth to power, that when he did pass, I vowed to myself that I wouldn't be silent. At this point, Dantley's personal or cultural values start meshing with what corporate values should be. Almost any company makes a product or offers a service available to anyone. At its most evolved, the product or service bridges gaps among all communities. So why would you not design your employee experience to reflect that same diversity? So that that comes through us being very open with how we work. Uh, It comes from us being very vulnerable in terms of what we need uh, from a a talent and thought perspective in order for us to be better. And it comes uh, from us being willing to put a mirror in front of us to illuminate our flaws. And, and by doing that, we, we saw that we didn't have the right level of representation for the important work that we were doing beyond Silicon Valley. And where the team is today is more of a representation of those values. If diversity and inclusion aren't embedded in your company's values, it'll be very hard to enact those values in the employee experience and the customer experience. So DNI starts with the leadership of your company. Are they recruiting proactively? Are they running sponsorship programs and listening sessions? Are they supporting employee resource groups? Are they fostering an inclusive culture where you feel like you belong? And there are things you can do too. Listening and learning and making spaces for voices that are not normally heard is a great start to practicing allyship. Wherever possible, BIPOC employees can find strength in community and build their own recruiting pipelines as they do that. And if you don't feel a sense of inclusion, maybe look around for a company that lives those values. And speaking of values, we'll dive much deeper into what that looks like in another episode. Before that, though, in the next episode, we dive deeper into the employee experience to look at how that can be a beacon for choosing the right company for you wherever you might be in your career. But for now, we all need to do the hard work of diversity and inclusion together and for one another. Ibram X. Kendi uh, talks about anti-racism, that it's not enough to to be not racist, because being not racist is actually... Uh, It's like what in my book I say, it's just being a believer. You just believe in these things, but you're not actively building for them. Thanks for listening. I'm Sonia Kang, and this is For the Love of Work, an original podcast made possible by Rogers. Find us at fortheloveofwork.ca. Talk soon.